This is Coda Radio, episode 378, for September 7th, 2020. friends and welcome to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business, software development, and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a cloud guru, the leader in hands-on cloud training. The only way to lock in a new skill is by doing. That's why ACG provides hands-on labs, cloud Linux servers, and much more. Get your hands cloudy at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every week is our host from the other coast. It's Mr. Jar... I mean, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike. What's up? I'm so happy Misa here. Wait, that was Mario. You know what? I've sometimes thought your Jar Jar is a little Mario, which I kind of prefer. I got to be honest. It doesn't trigger me as much. Is it because I'm Italian? You, you racist fiend? Is that why? <laughs> yeah, obviously. Clearly. <laughs> it's not because you just sound exactly like him. Could it be? I'm uh, I'm super elated to be here today because uh, we had a terrific response to the Coder QA team. Thank you, everybody, who went to CoderQA.co and became a member. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the other thing that's really exciting is we managed to get Wes for today's episode, mostly because we struck him on a day off, and so he had no excuse. Hello, Wes. Hello. Yeah, I mean, what could be better on Labor Day than a little bit of labor of love? Coder Radio. I know. This right here is documented proof that Mike and I are still not great small business time management guys because here we are working on Labor Day. And if we really had it together, we probably wouldn't be. You're machines. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. You just never stop working, which you're right. It's not good for the family or the health, but maybe the bottom line. What's a Monday when you've already worked a Sunday? I am like on cloud nine today because Linux Action News is back and everybody's freaking out. They're loving it. Episode 153, linuxactionnews.com slash 153. If you want to stay up to date on what's going on in the world of Linux and open source, if it impacts your career or if it benefits you to stay informed, just check out linuxactionnews.com because you get it in like 30 minutes or less. Just a nice, tight summary. And Joe and I have been following this uh, stuff forever, so we've got some insights and contacts we can reach on to inform our opinions, and I'm really proud of it. linuxactionnews.com slash 153. It's back. You know, a product launch is a big deal. You know, it's like it's that's like that's our version of a product launch right there. Exciting. Stressful. Finally, I can stop keeping up on the Linux news myself and just let you and Joe take care of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wes really has this time management thing down. He's delegating. I like it. Yeah. I mean, it's smart, right? Outsource your news collection. Now, uh, we do have a little bit of feedback to get to coder.show slash contact. Joey wrote into the show about freeloading enterprise users. So uh, get your flame retardant pants on, gentlemen, and let's uh, answer this question. Also, uh, I like that I think Joey is maybe a new listener or messed this one up because it's, quote, Hi, Chris, Wes, and Payne. (laughs) You know, if we change the spelling, it might just be derogatory about old Mike over there. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's just, you know, P-A-I-N, right? (laughs) Thanks, man. Okay, that that, that, that kind of works. Pain in my Georgia. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he says, I wanted to bring your attention to a topic that I'm confident will be interesting for your audience and you guys to talk about. Recently, there has been a big move by large industry players 
including Microsoft, to stand behind open source, quote unquote. However, one of the overlooked aspects is the fact that these open source developers are not paid for their work. And often software companies take their open source work and repackage it and sell it for millions. How can this be sustainable? And won't these projects just eventually be taken over by the large companies like Microsoft and Amazon? Do you have a hot take on that, Mike? So I'm, I'm a little confused by that, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of contribution in terms of money going on. And isn't it the case that like Microsoft now employs a bunch of people who work on Linux? Yeah, I think, you know, what they're probably, what Joey's probably referring to is, oh, Wes, maybe you can help me jog my memory, but there's been a couple of database projects recently in the last two years. Oh, like Mongo? Yeah, that's one. That have that have really struggled with companies like Amazon or Microsoft repackaging it up or essentially ripping off, re-implementing and making millions and not financially contributing to the project. I think and the, those projects have been fairly vocal about it. So that's probably where Joey's getting this from. I kind of see part of where he's coming from. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think there's multiple things here. Like there's open source in the sense of the license and then there's like open source in the sense of community and like individual project maintainers and owners and maybe there's more and more of a trend where your open source project gets gets successful either you start a small business that you try to build and then yeah you run into problems because amazon wants to sell your stuff doing it you know at larger scale than you ever could or you just end up hired by one of these giant companies and keep working on your project and do either of those really fully count as the thing that maybe Joey's getting to around the spirit of open source? I guess the part that I could see where it's unsustainable is if these products so overshadow the original product or project, it may be hard for them to get talent to work on it. And then they could sort of shrivel, I suppose. Um, but this is what I go back to. This A isn't a new problem. And B hasn't really been fully solved for any particular slice of the market. But when you go back in time, this has really kind of been going on forever. It is a little more pronounced now because of the scale, I think, of cloud services. But large enterprise companies ripping off entire sections of open source stacks and then implementing them under the under the scenes and not telling you about it or not having to release the license depending on the project is super common. It's a, it's a practice that already happens. And I, I think a lot of developers that are working in this space probably already know that before they even get started, that it's a reality. Is the problem the creators of the projects not being able to make money? And just because I'm contractually obligated, I have to mention Sun and Java at least once a month. Yeah. So it's the problem that like Wes makes some open source project and then like Oracle comes in and is like, great job, Wes. Thanks for the BSD license. Uh, we're just going to commercialize this, you know, have some cake. In part, that's part of it. And then I think where, where it's really kind of the double whammy is if one of these projects decides, you know what we're going to do is we're going to offer our own hosted version of our project fully managed for a service fee. And then AWS comes along and offers the same thing as part of AWS. For pennies on the dollar because they're on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And then it's like a double whammy at that point. And that is like, boy, that's hard because that was their revenue path to sustainability and that's clearly been eclipsed. But at the same time, it's sort of the way the market works. And when you make something for free, somebody can take it and build on top of it. Now, I think there's a solution for this. Um, there's this new technology. A, a guy who comes to my user group, his name is Bill. Uh, he calls it, he wrote a letter to the hobbyists, something <laughs> yeah. about stealing software or like, I don't propri proprietary. Is that a word? Yeah. You know what we ought to try is a shareware model. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's bring on the 3.5-inch floppies. Let's do it. Yeah. 
Speaking of your friends who come and hang out at groups and uh, and are buddies with Bill, uh, Tim Sweeney and some of his uh, cohorts have their latest filing. They're asking for an in- a preliminary injunction, but also in the court filing, they released data on numbers of users and the impact this whole shenanigans has had. So Epic says Fortnite has 116 million iOS users, which is a third of the game's 350 million total users. Oh, crap. Wow. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And this one kind of hurts. They say their iOS daily active users declined by 60% since its removal from the App Store. That is pretty significant. Now, it's not going to kill them, but that is a decent chunk. 116 million users out of 350 million total. I mean, they're really playing with fire here. But I suppose you could look at this from another angle and say, we've got to change these policies before that share gets even larger. I guess. I mean, I know I had a pretty spicy take that was unpopular on Twitter that like the judge said and Apple said you could just go back on and pay them 30 percent during the lawsuit and that would be okay. Yeah, that did seem like a decent compromise on Apple's part. Right. But. Tim Sweeney, again, shares many character flaws with me, has decided to lose a bunch of money for no reason. I, I don't kind of get this. Yeah, it's an interesting stand to, to just, you know, fully rely on. We're just going to keep complaining. I suppose it does let them make these continued arguments. If they went back on, they wouldn't have these big numbers to drop. Or maybe, you know, slightly smaller numbers anyway. I guess. Yeah, and the damages would be a lot less. Now, um, Miguel Itacaza on Twitter had a pretty popular thread, and I'm curious to get your guys' take on this. He says, I bet Fortnite could work in Safari without going through the App Store. Like Confucius famously said in 500 BC, when there's a billion-dollar budget, there's a way to compile the code to WebAssembly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, isn't there something to that? And, of course, the Twitter thread goes to point out all of the GL limitations and file size limitations, like 10 megabyte module limitations and these things. But Miguel's response to all of that is, yeah, but where there's money, there's a way. And you essentially identify the technical problems and you build accommodations for them and you just avoid the App Store altogether. I mean, I I don't think you could pull that off, at least uh, not in mobile Safari. But Wes, what do you think? Yeah, I think that would be the trickiest part. It doesn't seem like Apple's gone um, out of their way to support all the things that might make this easy to do. Yeah. But there is that point. I mean, you know, Epic has a lot of resources to throw at these things. It would probably also be beneficial for that ecosystem for, you know, a major game and company to start pouring more resources into it and explore if that might actually be workable. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment because there are tons of limitations right now. There's no WebAssembly threads in Safari's WebAssembly implementation. Um, it doesn't have WebGL2, but Firefox and Chrome have had that for years. And it's never going to. <laughs> um, there's also, like, um, I think the game install on devices with all the, once all the assets are pulled down is, like, 30 gigs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is a little weird back and forth, too, in this thread, you know, where on, on one side, people criticizing this idea are pointing out some of the problems. And then Miguel's response is basically, well, you've got money. You, you could you could do it. And then the other side of things is people pointing out, well, how is Apple going to respond to this? And him not really liking any of that sort of theorizing. So I'm not not sure it's a real fair playing field on what money really makes possible, because at some point there are actual technical limitations, especially on a tightly controlled platform. Hand wave money is essentially his answer. <laughs> right. 
I completely disagree. Having used Xamarin Forms when it was independent and after Microsoft bought them, by the way, Miguel is the Xamarin guy for people who don't know. Um, let me tell you something. Microsoft just injecting those Benjamins has made it so much more stable. Is that sarcasm or is that sincerity? <laughs> I can't. Do- <laughs> you know what the saddest part? It's 100% sincere. Yeah, okay. I mean, money definitely goes a long way. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's possible if you have the right team. I mean, we put man on the moon in the 60s, so. <laughs> With a calculator, effectively. But I think Wes is right that Apple will probably, if you even try this, react in a very... I, I'm i going to cry if I think about what they might do. Right? Like, they're they're not going to take it. I don't know. I don't buy it. See... You don't think so? I find this take that Apple wants to hurt the web and that Apple wants to limit uh, what the web can do kind of ludicrous and ridiculous on its face because not only did the iPhone originally launch with 100% focus on web apps but if you look at overall in totality Safari has been extremely competitive on mobile yeah it doesn't have webgl2 yeah it doesn't have web assembly threads well yeah isn't that does competitive just mean it's the browser to use that works well on the device that you paid a lot of money for i mean i think one of the things that you got to fundamentally credit them for is rendering the real web not the baby web on a mobile device. And then the other super clever thing they did is they figured out that if a user double taps in an area that seems to be associated with a CSS element, zoom in specifically to that element to take out sort of the, you know, play in the zoom. And bringing things like WebGL and other features to mobile and making it a very competitive mobile browser, if you look at that, like, they pioneered that essentially. Mobile browsers before the iPhone really sucked. And so I don't think Apple has gone out of their way to limit Safari. I just, I don't think it is the number one priority on the platform. And so it lags in some areas. Well, and doesn't it just make sense that they have a, you know, a business interest in incentivizing things to focus on the App Store anyway? I mean, I would say I bet Apple would define web browsing and web applications very differently. Like they want a great browser for you to go to like NewYorkTimes.com. But I don't think they want people building full featured web apps and using Safari instead of the App Store. I could be wrong. Maybe. But then why would they have invested all of the energy they have into making it possible? And why do they still make it possible for you to put website bookmarks on your main iOS uh, you know, launch screen as an icon, like an app? Well, isn't there always a balance there, right? You've got to give users what is helpful to some extent, no matter what, even if it isn't exactly what you wish they were doing. Yeah. And as someone in the chat saying, every other browser on iOS is in fact Safari, right? They block. So... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and as of as of the current released OS, you can't even change the default web browser <laughs> ten years into the platform. <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, but I guess that's changing in iOS fourteen for certain approved browsers. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, can't innovate my ass. That's right. Just aside, we are doing Coda Radio live again on Mondays. If you'd like to join us, so do head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it in your local time. It's noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern for us at jblive.tv. And uh, we'd love to have you in the chat room. There's, um, you know, a couple of times a week now, live shows. we got two live, two live shows a week right now. I'm feeling pretty good. Speaking of doing things for the consumers, there's a story that uh, was dropped in the notes that I can't really necessarily see a downside to, so we'll just wrap up the Apple stuff with this. Quote, later this year, the App Store will help users understand an app's privacy practices before they download the app on any Apple platform. On each app's product page, users can learn about some of the data types the app may collect and whether that data is linked to them or used to track them. 
You'll need to provide information about how your this is to developers. You'll need to provide information about how your app's privacy practices, including the practices of third-party partners who code integrates with your app. Facebook SDK. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In the App Store Connect starting this fall. And the way it kind of is being sold to users as a type of nutrition label for privacy that'll show up on all App Store apps, on all Apple platforms. Is there anything bad about this from a user's perspective, Mike? I mean, I can understand from monetization from Facebook and users. Users? Yeah. Those, the hell with them. They won't pay $5 for an app. This is more paperwork for developers. I'm against it. It is for sure. I mean, I I mean, I'm, I want to get to that, but I just mean we have to keep in balance here for the end users. This seems like a net win. Now, I totally appreciate. Yeah, I'm, I'm trolling. Well, no, I mean, for the developers, this does is a major pain in the ass. I wonder if, the, you know, we already have nutrition labels and like life. And I don't, do people read them? So I think about like the analytics, you know, packages that people can get that track app usage and crash reports and even can do pretty significant data collection. That is in a lot of apps. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's bad. I don't know what to say. I mean, forget about that. The Google SDKs and the Facebook SDKs alone are you're going to see a lot of scary stuff in all the apps you use, right? Yeah. yeah. That's where it's kind of funny is. You're right, it will be annoying to developers, but it's probably something they should have done a little bit better job thinking about already, just having to drop all these things in there that, yeah, all right, well, you know, this big corporation takes care of it, and I just include it because I need this one feature. That's what it is. This should have been in there from day one, and now developers have been running amok, you bastards, and now you got caught. <laughs> you got caught reading clipboards. You got you got caught tracking people. They've delayed something. Like, didn't they just delay some aspect of, of the tracking blocking stuff? But, yeah. Well, that's because Facebook fought them, right? Like, literally, fa- Apple blinked. Yeah, it's interesting they blink on that, I guess. Because Mark Zuckerberg is a lot more stealthy than Tim Sweeney is what we're learning, right? Well, maybe. Although, one is a policy that they agreed to when they entered the App Store, and one is a policy that is being applied retroactively. So maybe Apple is just more considerate in that scenario. Is that crazy? You seem pretty bullish on this. So, like, do you think this is going to impact how you, you guys download applications? I mean... For my kids, it might, yeah. Sure, uh, yeah, okay. I could see that, and, and and my wife, I could see it mattering. I'm already kind of skeptical, you know, when it comes to my usage, but I could definitely see it for them. My daughter accidentally downloaded a Roku app, remote control, and it somehow got her to agree to a $15 a month subscription to enable the app's functionality. <laughs> what? Roku? It's, yeah. It's just Wi-Fi, right? It's just sending, it's just sending Roku remote commands over Wi-Fi. It auto-detects the Roku device <laughs> and just sends it commands over the API, right? 15 bucks a month. And so I'm looking at my email. Thankfully, I caught it, right? But I mean, after, after it charged me. <laughs> and I even had it turned on to like ask for my permit. I, I don't know what happened. But it's tricky the way it, it gets people into it. And she didn't know she was doing anything wrong. It's, uh, it's a complicated thing. So that's the next, but that'll be the next frontier. And all that kind of shenanigans. And, and I think it matters because it definitely has knock-on. It's going to impact the Play Store for sure. Also, obviously, this is all going to play into uh, larger antitrust stuff that the ball seems to start rolling there more and more. Um, all of these stories will play into that dynamic. Let's take a break and tell you about Linode Cloud Hosting, linode.com slash coder, and you'll get a $100 60-day credit towards your account. $100, linode.com slash coder. Simplify your cloud infrastructure 
with Linode's Linux virtual machines and robust set of tools to develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. They have 11 data centers around the world, enterprise-grade hardware, and their next-generation network, which is fast. They have a lot of nice rigs, too. Now, the shared plans start at $5 a month, so that $100 credit. Uh, you could, I mean, you could do anything you want, right? But I, I actually would encourage you to play around with their configurator. It is slick. They have a ton of OS options. They have easy ways to deploy with one click. They also have what I have messed around with a little bit for setting up different WordPress installations. They have these stack scripts that make it really easy to set up a really high-speed WordPress deployment. And you can just, it's all really easy to read the script and make your own. So that's nice. Of course, everything's SSD, 40 gigabit connections that come into the machines. They have a beautiful cloud manager and a nice way to track everything that's happening. And if you want to integrate it in with something a little bit larger, more production grade, they have fast and simple Kubernetes cluster deployments, really easy to get going. They also have a container orchestration engine to make it simple to manage multiple containers, dedicated GPU rigs. You just have to go to linode.com slash coder for a $100 60-day credit. That's linode.com slash coder. They're my cloud provider now. I've been using them for about two years, and we just built a matrix server on there for the network, and it just screams. It really is great performance. This is reliable infrastructure. They have been in the game for a long time. They're trusted by a lot of leading tech companies, and they've been in the community. Linode.com slash Coder. And thanks to Linode for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. All right, gentlemen. So why don't we get into something kind of neat? Something special happened since last week that really didn't get very much attention. On the 5th of September, C++20 was approved, which I didn't really understand or appreciate what this meant. So I did a little bit of reading before the show. And now I understand that this will be the sixth revision of the C standard. I like that some of the positioning around this has very intentionally been another opportunity for you to consider C++. The standard became technically finalized by the WG21 at a meeting in Prague in February of 2020. So we knew this was coming, but it it just happened. The draft was approved just recently as we got together today. And I like this idea as a topic, Mike, which you suggested because no one's really talking much about C++ in 2020. Yeah, well, you know, all the cool people like Wes are on Clojure, Elixir, some language he's probably inventing in a basement somewhere. <laughs> what we really have to appreciate is that C++ is the only language that's steering committee is also a venue for a Bond film. They're in Prague. I'm, I'm assuming they're playing Baccarat, right? That's what I'm picturing. I'm thinking, right? Yeah. A L- lot of slinky dresses. It's, it's a good time. Yeah. Fancy cars. Fancy cars. Drinks that are uh, stirred. Shaken. Oh, not stirred. Not stirred. Shaken nuts. Not stirred. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to pitch it to Wes in a second. But the, the over, overriding thing that I got as I was reading up on this, it's just how damn big C++ is as a language. And I mean, like big in terms of like, it has like all the features I've basically heard of in basically any language, right? You can program in many different ways. It's a little nuts. I've been playing with it some for a kind of fun side project. There's a, like a new way to do pointers that didn't exist the last time I actually had to do C++, so that's amazing. I don't know, Wes, have you, have you fooled around with modern C++ at all? Yeah, that's what's been interesting. You know, I have played a little bit, but I did most of my C++, well, probably like 10, 15 years ago. So it's kind of fascinating to watch. I do think you're onto something just, you know, looking around at people commenting on the release. I like this. 
even as a C++ programmer with too much spare time, it has become obvious that learning and using all of C++ is beyond impractical, to the point where I find that my C++ code, more than ever, looks kind of just like C. And yet, you know, I think C++ suffers a bit from being, you know, a little bit legacy, despite being more modern. And where you get into, you know, you see a lot of arguments is that, like, what standard is is used, what standard parts of the standard are being supported for the compiler that you are actually using. And then, of course, the the problem with a lot of, you know, long-term, long-lived languages is, like, how do you, how do you learn what modern best practices are if all the tutorials are out of date? And, you know, I think there's been a lot of pushback, especially compared to a language like Rust, where, yeah, C++ has pioneered a lot of these zero-cost abstractions, but you got to know more about it versus a language like Rust that, you know, those are pushed right from, you know, right from the start of the tutorial that this is the way that you go. Yeah, I mean, a great example of that is, uh, so a big feature in C++ C++20, which should be easy for me to say, but isn't, is uh, modules, right? They've introduced modules, which I am not a deep C++ guy, so I don't know a whole lot about. But if you read the back and forth on the groups, there is quite a lot of controversy about how that was done, how that should have been done. And it almost reminds me of like, you know, we always end up with that argument of like, what is the tasteful subset of a language, Right, right. So I don't know. It's um, I mean, it's still not Objective-C, so I'm not particularly excited, but whatever. You have nowhere to go from there, right? I, I cornered you into the Objective-C. Yeah, that's that's hard to beat. Well, I think the other question is is going to be, you know, how if you are a C++ advocate and you're really excited about C++20, how do you go spread that word and get, you know, folks who are interested in doing a little lower level stuff who, you know, some of the advantages, speed, control, specificity of C++ might be useful, how do you convince them that it's worth learning and going through all the warts and figuring that out? You know, like the module stuff's really interesting, but again, like if you're, if another option might be learning Rust or another modern language that has better or at least more modern concepts of, you know, package and dependency management, it might still be an excellent tool for folks who've been doing it for 10 years, but how do you keep that mindshare going? Well, and that's a great point about Rust, right? Because I have in the doc here, I have Rust, Go, and Swift. All three of them share one thing in common. Well, in addition to not being as good as Objective C, they, <laughs> oh, God. I can't, I can't just can't help myself. <laughs> All of them were created with the idea that they would be basically C plus plus, but better, or like C plus plus without the C, or something like that, right? And I mean, Swift, even Swift, which is why I include that disgusting thing on this list. Because Chris Latner himself said he wanted it to be like Objective-C and C++ without the C. How do you convince someone who's like new that they're going to, yeah, like you're saying, right? You got to deal with, you know, 30, 40 years of warts in C++. I know it's not 40. When you could just like, I don't know, write in Rust and learn that you're a bad programmer because nothing compiles. Or write in Go and get a cute plushie from Google. Or write in Swift and have an inferior development experience. Wow, but you get to go to WWDC then. You can justify that. Not in 2020, you don't, maybe. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. You know, the thing, uh, just just as an observation, is Rust is front and center in, in a PR announcement, much like machine learning or AI is. Just last week, Amazon announced AWS Bottle Rocket, which is a container Linux distribution. And right there, front and center in the official Amazon press release, they talk about how the user land is full of Rust tools that they've written. And it's Rust, Rust, Rust. Why? I don't, I don't get that at all. Is that, is that a selling point for a container solution? 
It is, I think, because Rust is known as the safe language. It's the safe language to write your tools in. That's sort of just sort of like it's a, it's almost like a celebrity programming language now. And it's like why you have movie stars in your movie, for in your big action movie, you want to have Sylvester Stallone. If you're releasing something that's supposed to be safe, reliable, and enterprise-grade, having Rust on the label sells. Who are they selling to? Developers, IT admins, sysadministrators. You know, I mean, if this is so in this case, in this example, this is the AWS Bottle Rocket uh, project that they announced. It's open source. It's up on GitHub. It's pretty wild. The whole thing's there. Their issue tracker, a Kanban board, all of it. They got a, they got their Trello thing going on, <laughs> and uh, and it's all there. And yeah, the tools are all all the userland tools, as they call the space above the kernel, as they put it, is all Rust. So it's a distro. Yeah. Yeah, it's a full distro sitting on top of a lot of essentially um, best practices now uh, using, you know, containers to deploy your applications and taking advantages of eBPF and the Linux kernel, taking advantage of SE Linux and all that stuff and making it designed with the idea that you're not SSHing in, but you're probably using it with an orchestration system. And I don't think it's any just mistake or accident that Rust is featured in their promotional material about it. Right. I mean, I think it goes back to that sort of like the defaults and where the community pushes you. I mean, I've definitely seen some pushback on the Rust hype from experienced C++ programmers who point out that like, yeah, a lot of these same sort of concepts, abstractions, you can write, you know, clean and safe C++ code. I think the question is, A, how often does that happen, especially for, you know, some X random software with a mixed range of experienced developers, but then B, it doesn't have that same air, right? You, you, when someone chooses Rust, you see that, oh yeah, right, they, they want those safety features. And even if they're doing a bad job of writing Rust, which the people writing the PR n- never check out or look at, <laughs> it's, it just has that air of the community takes that seriously. Well said. Right. You can write Rust and turn off all the safety features, right? Like literally unsafe the whole application. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really well said. That's why I kind of compare it to tossing in machine learning, if possible, to a press release with a product, you know, a tech product. If it's a monitoring product or something, something that uses the cloud, you know, it often will have machine learning and artificial intelligence, and they just kind of include it in the press release. And it's vague. It doesn't actually tell you what the implementation is or how useful it is or how core to the product it actually is or what it actually does. But they still put it in there, and it's kind of like that. But it, it sells, or else they wouldn't do it. Salad check now with machine learning. I actually would be down for that. If there was a salad shack that could learn the salad I liked and maybe even suggest future salad ideas, kind of seems like a great idea. <laughs> Whoever is listening, there is your next great app opportunity, the salad genie for Chris. There you go. And Mike only charges 30% as a licensing fee. <laughs> yeah, there you go, per salad. Now imagine like an Uber Eats that you just open up on your phone and you just push a button and it just knows what you'd want and gets it for you. That'd be... That's what Google ought to use all their AdWords machines for. It's just fascinating to watch this uh, language continue to evolve. And then I'll also be curious to see, you know, we've already seen some movements. We were just talking about Linux, um, you know, some movements to support maybe using Rust to write like some modules for the Linux kernel. When will that start creeping into like some of the major adopters like scientific computing or, you know, game engine design that C++ is really entrenched in? Like, is that going to start shifting? And what kind of time frame is that going to take before you start seeing Rust sneaking in there? Or another language. Didn't I say, yeah, Microsoft is adopting Rust. April, August 4th, 2020, Microsoft is adopting Rust. And, uh, quote, Rust is the industry's best chance at safe systems programming. Oh, geez. And they say here, C++ can't be fixed. 
<laughs> coming in hard. Coming in real hard. I'm sorry. I need some ointment for the flames. I'm going to, I'll drop a link to this in the show notes if audience members, that's probably, uh, that's a good one to read for a moment. It seems kind of spicy and uh, I like it. Huh. The best chance, Microsoft says. And there's an article at Medium written by somebody at Microsoft, uh, Tino uh, Carr, I think, on Microsoft's adoption of Rust and why they're adopting it. Microsoft determined that 70% of security patches pushed towards computers are related to memory-related bugs. So, I mean, that's saying something. They certainly have plenty of C++ in that their uh, operating system of theirs. Yeah. And, yeah, right, defaults matter, and you can do those things with C++, but if you, know, if you can't always trust that that's going to happen, maybe something that makes it easy and right there already so you've got extra safety. So, Mr. Payne, you doing any, uh, any developing for the uh, day job? Anything you've been working on? Sure am. You know, actually, I've been having a lot of fun. Uh, I'm doing Python development at the moment, and I've been using this neat framework called Fast API, which I was trying to hint to Mike that maybe he should check out. Oh, really? Python? So not Clojure. Is that a challenge, sir? <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it is. Yeah, I would love to see if, because you've been doing some Python too, right, Mike? Uh, not only am I doing some, I'm hiring another Python developer. Plug, plug, plug. Oh. Hey. hey where do they get info for that? If I was prepared, I would have put up the job post. Ah, so maybe next episode we'll have it. Follow me on Twitter. We'll have it for next episode for sure. There you go. This is interesting, Wes. So Fast API, what's this do? Uh, well, you know, it's an, it's a framework for Python that really just tries to make things very nice for developing APIs. And, you know, so much of stuff these days, it's either computers talking to computers or humans talking to computers, and you're going to need an API. And some of the frameworks that have existed currently can do a lot more than that, right? I mean, they can make just sort of simple web apps. They can be a background API. They've got all kinds of integrated ORM solutions. Maybe maybe solutions like Django that has like support for building forms built into it. FastAPI just sort of gets out of your way, provides some really nice integration with a, a library called Pydantic. It's a data validation library that takes advantage of Python's somewhat recent introduction of type hinting to just provide a lot of nice affordances out of the get-go. So you can stand up your API. It comes with, you know, open API and Redoc built right in. It's got data validation right integrated into the solution with really nice error messages by default. So you can focus on actually doing the hard work of the back end of the API, calling out to whatever their services and databases that you actually need to talk to. Wow, hey, check this out. Neil linked in the IRC on the live stream to fedoramagazine.org, which talks about building a small web service using Fast API. This is uh, pretty cool. This is a great walkthrough introduction to it. Oh, neat. This is really, it came, oh, hmm, kind of recently too, June, June 1st, 2020, as we recorded. It's at least fairly recent. Neat, Wes. How did this come about? Because this is actually, I did not expect Python to be your answer. I have to tell you, I thought it'd be something either much more esoteric or, I don't know, something really enterprisey. I guess I just don't, I don't think of Python when I think of enterprise uh, software development. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it sneaks in in more places than you might suspect. Python's also been improved recently, somewhat recently, with, you know, better async support. So there's better concurrency built into the language. And yeah, there, there are going to be some, you know, high-scale services where maybe Python isn't going to work for you. But for a lot of APIs and web applications where a lot of your, you know, a lot of your calls end up being dominated on latency calling into the database or other, you know, large operations, 
Python works pretty well, and it's just so developer-friendly, you know? Like, it's easy to get started with, especially with libraries like FastAPI, and it has such a rich ecosystem. Yeah. If you, if you want to call into, you know, any cloud service, yeah, they've got a Python API. If you want to use any database, they've got a Python API. Yeah, and the reality is I know I know a lot of enterprise applications that do use Python, so I... I don't. I don't know. I just didn't expect that, but it's pretty great. Yeah. Well, a good majority of Google, right, of uh, of their support stuff is actually like all Python. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've used entire backup systems that are powered by Python. Uh, Chatroom points out Ansible is written in Python. A lot of Red Hat's tools. I mean, tons of yeah. <laughs> but I just not not what I expected. <laughs> so Wes, how does this compare to like a Flask? It's a little more purpose driven, I'd say. You know, Flask is great. I've used Flask before and and enjoyed it, but it's a little more loosey-goosey, perhaps you might say. I mean, like, you can do whatever you want in Flask, which is awesome. Right. But if you're really just, like, trying to get, like, a, an API that you can build to a standard, you have fewer choices, and that can be a good thing. Because, like, Fast API has chosen your data validation library for you, which is Pydantic. Okay. Which I've been enjoying a lot. And so it really sketches this model where, right from the get-go, you're defining you know, request and response types that are leveraging Python's type hinting. And all of that's integrated so that that gets pushed into the open API specification for you so that that's already provided for you and, you know, for your clients to consume if they want to go that route. And then in the back end, as you're writing it, you know that you've already validated all this data. It's also got just nice basic features like, you know, it's, it's going to catch any uncaught exceptions for you and make sure that just turns into a 500 without any embarrassing backend info. Mm. It's like they've taken all the bits of like, I need to write a thousand APIs to expose these new features for my clients. I want to make that as fast as possible and not have to deal with all the little fiddly bits and choosing which library over here that might handle this one part of it. I'm noticing uh, automatic interactive docs, too. That's awesome. Exactly, right? It's just this little, like it's none of its none of its stuff that you couldn't do in any other framework or just building yourself by assembling libraries. But sometimes your application isn't unique enough to really warrant that kind of special care and attention, and I think that's the use case that fast API shines. And you've seen it somewhat for like I think as more people are doing machine learning and Python's pretty big in that community, it can be a nice way to, you know, serve up models, interact with those systems. It probably won't be the best if you're trying to build like a classic web application. Yeah, okay, maybe use Flask or, you know, especially Django for that. But if you're really sort of an API-driven business or project, it's it's probably worth just checking out. The other part I like is that it's just, you know, it's really, I have mixed feelings about, about you know, the adoption and strong opinions around uh, static types in general. But I think that they found a really nice sweet spot here of leveraging sort of the optional typing that's been added to Python and focusing, like you see it all over their docs. It's clearly a focus is having those type ins partially for that, you know, that you can go do more static analysis, but also they've recognized the importance for new users and developers of integration with the IDE. And because there is so much type information provided in these libraries, you've got autocomplete just about everywhere you might expect. And it does a pretty good job of, you know, having a similar experience to an actually statically typed language. So what's your environment for doing this Python work? What do you mean? Uh, so you mentioned IDs. Are you using like PyCharm or Code? or? I thought this time around, I've used PyCharm a little bit in the past, but it's been a long while. I've also had a, a totally Vim-based setup, which which I liked pretty decently. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not like a, you know, a huge IDE, super rich support. Yeah. I kind of enjoy like having a terminal open and then like an editor open, and I'm going to be in a REPL anyway, probably, if I can. 
But I thought I'd strike the middle ground this time around since I was setting up, you know, building new projects, working on new stuff. I'd just totally invest and try out VS Code. And I've been having a lot of fun with that. Oh, 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 another VS Code user. A a code convert, you could say. Yeah. It is funny. I still find myself, like, I use Vim half the time anyway for editing some stuff. But as, like, a separate Python-dedicated window, it's really nice. I've also actually been enjoying the Git support a lot, too. Yep, absolutely. Those are some of the reasons I just love it. That, and it's got a fantastic YAML plugin. It's got a fantastic Markdown plugin. You know, SFTP opening files on remote servers is just... It's a treat. It really feels slick. Uh, I just, I'm really happy with it. I mean, I'm open to trying other ones, but interesting. I like it. I love it. So all three of us, because that's what you're using mostly these days too, right, Mike? Yeah, I, I'm actually all in code now, so. <laughs> Listen, people are going to think we're fanboys, but it's just what works for us. They're bought and paid for by Redmond. Yeah, making that big VS Code money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it was just this morning... I was really kind of feeling how no events have started to impact myself and sort of what I would normally be doing business-wise. I assume, Wes, you must be doing the work-from-home thing. And, and, Mike, I was also curious to get an update from you on the business stuff. But I'll, I'll share mine here in a moment. But, Wes, what about you? Have you, with this new gig, are you, are you doing the work-from-home thing from the start, essentially? Yeah, you know, um, actually, it was... Kind of the weird. It's the first time I did an entirely remote onboarding as well. Like I have never been into the office. Huh. I did have to go run over to my manager's house because he had a laptop that I picked up from him in a socially distanced manner. You know, so that was a little <laughs> awkward and a weird like first way to meet in person. But yeah. the interview, the interview was online. The onboarding was online. At this point, I don't know if I'll ever even have to go into the office. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's going to be true for a lot of people. And I feel like it's going to impact podcast downloads. I got a note from a guy today. He's like, oh, I just tuned into Linux Action News. I didn't know it was done for a while. I didn't know it was off the air. You know, people are just kind of now catching up on their podcast. But what about you, Mike? Is the business feeling it? Or at this point, have you reached a new normal for this sort of lockdown state, no events kind of thing? I think we've pretty much gotten used to it. I mean, I was pretty early on locking down because I'm crazy. I will say not having like, community events has been starting to feel that yeah but same other than that it's you know i'm sitting in. i have my little standing desk in my home office now i'm happy i'm fine i'm wondering how much even comes back next year right not a thing and if it lasts that long i wonder how much comes back and that would be a loss i think because for me it's it's a big part of i think how i get connected with the fact that we actually make something because otherwise i just sort of put it out there and maybe hear from 1% of the audience, maybe 2% of the audience. And you know it's true, and you know that's just the reality of it. But it, after a year of not talking, not actually speaking to a real human that listens, you know, other than like through Mumble or through a chat, it it's, it's, uh, it's unsettling. Because when I go to these meetups, and I know you guys know this is true, but like you, you end up with a table full or wherever you're at of people who are, interesting like they're in the industry or they're they're trying to get into the industry or they have a history like all these really interesting details and it for me it helps me connect with the fact that there's real people out there that are really listening to the show and a lot of them are doing things that I really admire or I find super interesting and that kind of gets me going and keeps me motivated i'm not really having any motivation problems but i do feel like it's sort of dipping but also there's been no event for us to really cover 
show wise. Like we haven't gone somewhere and done something from the show floor and covered it. Right. So it's just been lacking from the network all year. And I kind of miss doing that too. I find it interesting the um, different modes of like remote interactions as well. Um, my team's sort of been exploring that uh, around, you know, stand ups and like when do we communicate and when do you need to communicate? you know, sort of blocking issues. Like, I need to talk to you so we can resolve this for work stuff. But then also trying to figure out, like, how often do we actually just need to have a chat where we all sit around and bullshit so that, you know, like, we feel like we're a team and see each other's faces and, you know, what you might replicate hanging out in the lunchroom. Yeah, that is a hard thing to get right. And it can be a really hard thing when you're a really busy team as well, because then it's kind of hard to justify doing that kind of stuff. And you always get one or two people that like are there, but the mic's on a mute and they're like typing away and you can see they're not even like looking at the video call. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I find those Zoom meetings kind of fatiguing, too, because you always sit there and nod and smile. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to get that. It's nothing like having the team all together in the same space. Let's just take like Linux Fest Northwest or the one that happens in South Carolina, whose name I never remember. Or Ohio Linux Fest, which is coming up soon. So do you think they're just not going to happen, or do you think people are going to migrate virtual? <sighs> I think it's I think it's going to be virtual, which there's parts of that that I like. You, you know, you can get core aspects, and it makes it available to more people. I like all that stuff. I've been able to attend events that I'd never attended before. So that's positive. But the hallway stuff... The going out to eat, the building relationships over a period of time, you know, like Alex from Self Hosted, we met at Texas Linux Fest, and then we met at another fest that happens, you know, like three or four months after that, and we just resumed a conversation that started at Texas Linux Fest, and then took it online, and then Linux Fest Northwest came around, and then next thing you know, we have Self Hosted, and it was just this process of meeting someone going out, sharing a drink, sharing a meal, and talking about similar things and making a connection that is possible online, but just is so low bandwidth in comparison. That's it. It takes a lot longer to really suss out, like, do we vibe on that human-to-human -human level? Because we're just talking over the little little bit of text. It's truly a bandwidth issue. It's, a, it's like your human senses need more resolution than I think video provides, than seeing somebody from the top up, you know, the half up. Mm -hmm. And when you're out and about, you know, at an event, you interact with people in a technical sense, but also it's like regular humans, which you don't always see online. You get to see how they, you know, comport themselves at the restaurant. You get to see how they interact with other people and strangers, and it gives you a much richer view of a person. I'm really glad you said that because that is a huge aspect of it for me is you, when you're only online, when everything's virtual, it's like social media is reality in a way people the way people present themselves and the photos they share and the topics that they talk about. But when you go to an event and that same person is there, you see a three dimensional human being who is maybe actually a little overweight or doesn't have all their stuff together and also has flaws and isn't a perfect person. And that was a huge, huge revelation for me as the journalist aspect of this job, because I, I often go in with press credentials, which means I get access to the journalist area and meeting some of these names in tech journalism and taking them from like these these icons in tech journalism to just these human beings that are clearly flawed. Um, and and that was for me, it was like, oh. Oh, I oh I see. They're not like it, it's not like this impossible thing that I could never aspire to. They're just a guy or a gal who's been working at this for a long time. And they're just like everybody else. And not having that veil of social media removed from time to time, 
I think makes me feel like I live in this echo chamber that is super intense and often doesn't fully represent my point of view, not all the time, but just on various things. And maybe makes me feel like I'm not like uh, that's not a game I'm good at. I'm not good at social media. I don't tweet a lot. I don't share a lot of stuff. I try to reply to people, but it's just not where I'm. It's So it makes me feel like I'm not as good at at the job because that's when you're online and everything's virtual perception is reality and it's not an area i really have the motivation or energy to be hyper competitive in i don't feel like tweeting 17 times a day about stuff and taking pictures of every little thing and like every now and then i'm inspired like when i'm out in the woods or something i'm inspired to take a photo and i'll share that but that's about it or if levi's being cued yeah obviously if the if the pup's being cute that's got to get shared but actually the reality is Probably 0.1% of all the adorable Levi pictures ever get shared. (laughs) Oh, we need more. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, without these in-person events, I I feel disconnected in a way. And I feel like it's not real. It's not real life. It's just, it's not, it's not there. It's not connecting for me. There is a couple community events that I routinely go to. They're like quarterly, right, in Tampa. Three of them have tried to do these online, like, I don't like almost like a replacement kind of thing, right? Like virtualize it. And it's just awful. I mean, I, I don't know, man. It does, to me, it doesn't work without like the side, you know, of oh, let's just run in and grab a beer or a cup of coffee or something. It it's very, just feels like another Zoom meeting, right? Where somebody's pitching something and just not loose, very formal. And you don't have those breakaways, right? Like those ways to be like, oh, I'm clearly jiving with you. Let's like, I'm just going to chat with you in the corner for a little bit and get to know you better. You can't do that on a Zoom meeting, at least not without a lot more awkward formality, right? It's the difference between when I interview someone and we get connected on a tool and we're live and I say, okay, and well, you know, and it's all this big buildup versus going to their house and sitting down with them and recording an interview if it's just a chat in a chair. It's like these virtual meetings, you're kind of on, you're presenting a little bit. There's a camera on you as a human being. I think we can't help it when, when you see your face in a little box and you see other people are watching you. There's just parts of your brain that turn on. You're in presentation mode. At least that's how it works for me. And that's not to say I can't hang out with a friend or something or a family member on a call, and that's fine. But for these conferences and events, for me to actually be comfortable, I probably need to have my camera off. Because otherwise, I feel like I'm distracted by the fact that I'm I'm sort of in presentation mode. But then it sort of, it even reduces the network effect even further. I know I'm I'm kvetching about something that I sh- you know I should just be grateful is even happening because these events have taken a real beating but I guess at this point into it coming into September and I'm thinking about how usually October well this is what makes me this is what got me started thinking about this actually unless I'm wrong I think the last event I did was Texas Cyber Summit which was in October Yeah you're right Wow that really was like a universe ago Yeah and um you know it's like, uh, you know, after after a breakup, you know, you want to go out and, like, be free and, and uh, flaunt it. You know, I feel like I want to get out there and, uh, you know, shake my uh, moneymaker and, and, you know, socially distance, maybe. But Now that's a vision. Yeah. I think he means his microphone. He's shaking his microphone. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, you know, they're talking to people and seeing people and stuff like that. But So do you feel that once this is over, you're going to go out hard or do you think it's going to take a toll? I don't know. I don't know. Like the, I, I envisioned a lot more live content in 2020. I even pictured doing some of these shows on location somewhere 
because why not? Like I've been doing this for so long. Why not change it up? Maybe, maybe if I can find a spot that kind of has a live feel but isn't too distracting and loud, it could be a lot of fun. Take a train ride down to Seattle, set up a little temporary recording space, and doing it live from downtown Seattle today. I thought I'd be doing a lot of that in 2020, and I've done none of it because it was the winter and then and then the, the COVID lockdowns, and it really hit Seattle hard initially. So it just all came to a halt, and then all the events got canceled. I ended up not being able to make it to scale, and Linux Fest got canceled, and just boom, it all shut down. And so a year has gone by, and what I thought would be a rather common part of the business and and the content has not even materialized at all. It's and it's woe is me, right? I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to make it sound like it's some big some big loss, but it's something I just have been reflecting on recently and, and thinking how how I envisioned at the beginning of the year things would play out really differently in that ter- in that regard. Right, and you miss a couple conferences, and you're like, okay, well that sucks. But then after a while, you realize, yeah, you really do have this this yearning in, in you know in some human part of you that wants that connection. And there's the aspect of employment, too. I feel that conferences are a great way to network and get jobs if you're looking for work. A lot of times they're actively recruiting at booths, and there's always folks who have open positions that are walking around in the hallway track. I see it happen every conference I go to. Yes. And that that could be really useful right now, and that's also not happening. And I realize it can't, but as soon as it's safe to return, I, I, I will go back out myself I think it's an important aspect of community building and building out these relationships and seeing these people who we talk about in the headlines actually in person. But it's not for everybody. I get that. So anyways, let's end it on something positive. And I want to say thank you to the Coder QA team. Last episode, we announced that we were launching a membership program to help keep the show sustainable. And we would include a few perks for those members. And you can go to coderqa.co if you want to sign up. You get what I'm calling a very limited ad feed. There are some contractually obligated ads in there, but they're very, they're very, they're tight and tidy. But uh, it's essentially ad free, but it's fully produced and edited otherwise with the full mix. And it's available when you sign up at coderqa.co. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who became part of the Coder QA team. Now we have uh, next, I say the end of this quarter, right? That's when we need to do our coderly. Ooh. Did I get it? You coderly, you got it. <laughs> this is our new thing we're doing, Wes, is we launched a membership program to help cover the production cost of the show and keep it sustainable. And as a thank you to the Coder QA team, we have the ad-free feed with limited ads. And we have the quarterly, quarterly, quarterly update where we'll look back at trends and news items and stories from the show and kind of do a recap. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also, I am kind of cooking up other ideas for the membership stuff uh, like... Um, annual shows that if you're a member of any of the programs you would get and kind of other perks that are just applicable to all members. So if you've been thinking about it, uh, I I don't know if there's any more Jar Jar coupons. I forgot to check before we went on air, but you can try coupon Jar Jar to get, to get it knocked $2 off, knocked off, boom, knocked, just cut it off right off. Crazy Chris is cutting $2 off if you use promo code Jar Jar, although it may be all used up, but go to coderqa.co to find out. And then it's just $6 a month forever as long as you keep it active. Thank you to everybody uh, who did sign up for that. That was really nice. It's, so, it's super nice because, you know, not, not everything is in place yet, right? Like, we don't really have a long runway at the moment, and it's not a certain future at, by any stretch of the imagination. 
And uh, if it wasn't for the goodwill of the community and the great folks behind the scenes that helped make it all possible, like Mike and Wes and and others, I don't think I could even be attempting something like this at this point in time. But I'm hoping that we've got the right recipe, we've got the right combination of people, and we've got the right support from the community. So it was really, really nice to see people jump in on the Coder QA team, coderqa.co, and uh, that's all I have for that. Mike, you got anything you want to send people to? I know you said you might have a job opening soon. Where where would people be best to like stay tuned for that kind of thing? Uh, I would go to themadbotter.com or follow me on Twitter at Dumanuko. Excellent. Excellent. I can do that. That's easy enough. There are host bio links in the show notes, too, which will take you to Mike's Twitter. Mr. Payne, we ought to plug Linux Unplugged, uh, the double recording on Sunday, which is the 12th, I think, or the 13th? It is the 13th. Yeah, we've got a double coming up. Yeah, so uh, check the calendar. On Sunday the 13th, we're doing an extra Linux Unplugged if you like to do the live thing. And, of course, we'll have a regular episode. You can catch Wes and I on Linux Unplugged every single Tuesday. The same bat time, really. Just a different bat day. You do it at noon over there as well at jblive.tv. You can follow the show at Coder Radio Show on Twitter. We also have links to um, the membership at coder.show, links to everything we talked about, including stories and more at coder.show slash 378. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the Coder Radio program. We'll see you right back here next week.